0: Glad you're here on a Labor Day, I think it's Labor Day, is it Labor Day or Memorial Day? I always get it confused. Labor Day. I am calendar challenged. If you have spent any time around me, you know that, it's true, but we are glad you are here this morning. I am extremely glad to be stepping back into Luke, to be to be dealing again with the gospel of Luke. Um, we've taken a break, we took some time off so that Matt could kind of refine and, and hone some of his skills and just get some Practice uh, developing and building a sermon series. Um, I didn't know that I would miss Luke as much as I have, but I feel like I'm coming home. Not that not that it's the only scripture that's worth reading and studying, but but I just knew we we weren't done, and so I feel really glad. I'm excited to be back into this, and we'll be back in it for several weeks. Uh, and 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 I'm just excited about the things ahead of us, about what the Lord's Word has for us, and the. And the beauty, the good that's going to come from it, I'm, I'm just confident. So, so we're stepping back in, and, and as we do, we're picking up a thread that runs through the, the whole gospel of Luke. And you need to have it in your mind. We've been away from it for a little bit, but you need to have it in your mind that, that when, when Luke wrote, he didn't write just simply to give us some information to know, but he wrote and he told Theophilus in the very beginning of it, he said, Theophilus, I'm writing this so that you can be confident in the things that you have been taught, so that you can have certainty, that, so, that, so that you can be uh, assured, so, so that you can be uh, uh, believe without doubt in the things that you've been taught. And it's not that all doubt's bad. I don't want to misrepresent this. We, we even talked about it a few weeks ago. The last time we were in Luke, we were dealing with doubtable doubts. It's not that all doubt is bad. But God has, in his scripture, God has given us a, a way to see our doubts assuaged, to see our confidence established, to to be able to stand on a rock, and to believe with certainty in a world that is going to throw all kinds of other ideas at us, in a world that is going to give us all kinds of different opinions and perspectives, and 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 morals and and de- de- definitions of what's good and and bad and what's right and wrong. He gave us his word that we could be confident. He's been doing this. Luke has been. Showing us this, he, he he's been teaching it to us over and over. It starts with the birth narrative. Luke didn't give us the birth narrative and the events that surround the birth narrative so that we could have Christmas and get a couple of days off at the end of the year. You realize that? I mean, you you know that, right? But like, it's not so we can have a holiday. It's to demonstrate to us that Jesus Christ is the one who is to come. The one who had been promised from the Old Testament. The one who fulfilled the prophecies of the one to come. The one who came and whose testimony or, 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 or whose, whose life and whose birth fulfills the testimony of the prophets that had been proclaiming the coming Savior. And, and so Luke shows us that in the very beginning and he continues to do it over and over not just so that theophilus can be confident not just so that theophilus can have assurance and be certain but so that we even today can have this confidence and most recently we've been studying in Luke chapter 7 as we studied in Luke as most recently we were working through Luke chapter 7 and, and and from everything from Jesus being the fulfillment of prophecy to to him being, uh, to to, to having power to heal, to him being, uh, teaching with authority, having authority to forgive sins, power and authority in his teaching. All of these things have been described and and, and we come to Luke chapter 7 and no longer are we just looking at Jesus and being shown Jesus and, and reasons to be confident in Jesus. But we're beginning to be shown through Luke's gospel people actually becoming confident. People actually finding their assurance, finding their certainty. So Luke shows us that because of Jesus' power and authority, we, like the centurion who who demonstrated amazing faith, faith that amazed Jesus, this centurion who, who believed that Jesus had power and authority to heal his son, says, hey, don't even come to my house. Just say the word and I know it will happen. We can have this kind of assurance this kind of certainty, this kind of confidence in the midst of a world that is, is full of desperate situations. now We, like a woman, a widow, actually, who had lost her son, benefit from the great compassion of Jesus because of his compassion. We, like this widow, can know a great hope that fills us Even in the midst of a world that is full of hurt and pain and suffering and death. Death doesn't undo us. We we can trust Jesus not just for today, but he has our tomorrow. He has the day after that. And all of the tomorrows to come, he has them. And when the clock stops ticking and eternity rolls over, He's got it. He is our great hope. And we get to experience that hope. We, like this widow, because of his great compassion, can have this great hope. Luke shows us in in chapter 7. He culminates these ideas and the reactions. They culminate in, in this moment where John the Baptist, John the Baptist of all people, He'd baptized Jesus. He'd seen the spirit come down on Jesus. He'd heard God speak from heaven about Jesus. In the midst of a very difficult circumstance, a very difficult situation, he had been arrested and was facing death. He begins to doubt. So, Like John the Baptist, because of who Jesus is, we can be confident that our doubts in him are doubtable. There is always reason to doubt our doubts when they are applied to Jesus. When we we waver, when we face fears and, and trials and tribulations and it causes us to shake. Luke shows us, he teaches us and he demonstrates through the lives and the responses of other people to Jesus that we too, we too can be certain Our doubts are doubtable because Jesus is the one who was promised to come. He showed us that in the very beginning of his gospel record. And then he answers the question when John the Baptist poses it in Luke chapter 7. And today we can be certain that the Jesus who was promised and who came, so we can stand with this confidence that he's coming again. And truly, as we wait, as we wait, what we'll see today, as we, as we dive back into Luke chapter 7, we we'll see that Luke continues to show us that Jesus is worthy. Worthy to be trusted, worthy, to be to, worthy of our faith. He is trustworthy, that he is our only source of hope, that he is the stable ground in the midst of a very doubtful, faithless world. He's going to show us that he is worthy of being absolutely loved with our whole being. We can be so confident that we can surrender ourselves in adoration and devotion to him. We're going to see that in Luke chapter 7 verses 36 through 50. I'm going to dive right in. We're not going to, I'm not going to set this up for you. We'll, we'll actually build the context out as we go. And let me encourage you just to read the words uh, follow along as I read them. Just look at them. And put yourself in the middle of them. These aren't, this isn't just some exercise in, in uh, coming and getting a little knowledge. I mean, there's, there is truth here for you and for me. And, and by the time we're finished, my, my hope will be my, my hope is two things. If you've never trusted Christ. Like if you've lived in religion and practiced religion, or if you've never really been taught about who Jesus is, you will see him as worthy of your love. And, and if you've been a Christian a long time, and you're the most spiritually mature person in the room, my hope is this, that you will love him like the day you first met him. And your heart will be stirred. Your affections will be rich. And the emotion, the emotion that we long for, the experience that we look for, will be driven out of the knowledge that he first loved you. Let's read, if you will, beginning in verse 36. We'll stop along the way, and I'll build out some of the context for you. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at, <clears throat> at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her, the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now we're going to stop right there. Let me just, let's just climb into this, right? Let's, let's be there. Let's understand what's going on. So there's this crowd of people with Jesus. They are surrounding him, like they're following him as he goes to town to town. These people are following him around. They have quit jobs, they've left vocations, they've left homes and families so that they could come and find out about this Jesus. And Jesus has just finished teaching and answering the questions that John the Baptist's disciples had raised. And in that time, and at some point in that in that experience, this Pharisee's like. I need to have this guy over to my house. Like, I want him to come to my house and have a meal. And so after the teaching is over, he at some point approaches Jesus and invites him to his home. And, 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 and he's like, all right, well, this is, this is a big moment, right? Like this guy is famous. His reputation precedes him. He's actually coming into my house. Thing is, we don't really know why this Pharisee asked Jesus to come over. In a moment, you're gonna see that he's he doesn't welcome him, he doesn't honor him, he doesn't seem to serve him. He he kind of bypasses all the cultural expectations, the customary things he should have done as a good host in that culture. But for some reason, he wants Jesus in his house. And what surprises me, Jesus knows this guy's a Pharisee, Jesus goes. And I love this. I love this. It's not something that is is probably noticeable or even gets gets called out often. But Jesus actually goes. Jesus isn't, he's been been known now. He's got a reputation for hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. But he doesn't just care about the tax collectors and sinners. He cares about the Pharisees, the religious folks, those people that don't know they need him. He cares about them. He doesn't care who he's going to engage. He will engage anyone with the gospel. He goes. He shows up at this guy's house, goes in, reclines at the table. Jesus going and this guy's treatment of Jesus at his house, though, are not the most surprising things that happened in this moment, in this event. truth is there's a woman who shows up as they're reclining at the table who wasn't welcome, who would have been considered unworthy, who everyone in that room would have lifted their noses to, or lifted their chins to and looked down their noses at. They'd reclined around this table. This is the way they ate. And it seems terribly uncomfortable to I me. Mean, I actually looked all over the internet to try to find you a picture to give you an idea of what this looks like. They'd lay over on their side and they'd, they'd eat one-handed, you know, probably with their hands and... They'd lay there and, and talk and, and fellowship. The picture I found is a square table, but most of the commentators believe that it would have been a U-shaped table, and the person who was in the position of honor would have sat at the at the front of the table. Now I don't know if it's exactly like that. Seems terribly uncomfortable. I'm just I'm thankful for chairs, but this this I'm, seriously. I mean, I, we go to this is off the subject, but we go to Nikado's, and I'm always dreading the the. Table with the where you got to sit on the floor. It's like, come on, look at me. Anyway, I wasn't built to recline at a table and eat. Uh, maybe, well, we'll, we'll say that for another day. Say that for another day. Here we go. So, so here's this idea. So, so they're reclining. His feet are out from behind him, and this woman, who the scripture says is a woman of the city, a sinner. It's probably a polite way of saying she's a prostitute. She didn't belong in this guy's house. In fact, probably no one in that room would have wanted anything to do with her, at least publicly. It was very possible that people in that room had seen her, but they weren't about to tell anybody about it. she comes in she's had some experience with jesus she already knows of him already has heard him teach already has had some experience with him she hears that he's at this place she he's at this house that he's at this table and she 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 abandons cultural expectations and standards, and she goes into this house where he's reclined at this table, and she doesn't go up and speak to him. She doesn't, she doesn't try to make a, her presence known to him by, by engaging him. She bows at his feet and begins to weep. Now I'm not talking just a few little tears. Like she is a sobbing mess. If she'd been health and wealth, like prosperity gospel kind of woman, you know, like her, her makeup, her face would be on the floor. Like that, she is weeping ferociously. She's sobbing. One of the preachers that I heard preach on this talked about her being a snotty mess. I mean, this is what's going on. This is no pretty picture. But she is overwhelmed by being in his presence. She is sobbing she has this alabaster flask, this ointment. She's anointing his feet. She's kissing them. Despite the, despite the grime and the grit. And I, I mean, like, my feet are clean. You know, I got pretty feet. Just ask my wife. She'll tell you, I got pretty feet. <laughs> Probably don't. But, but really, she, I mean, this, these, they, they walked in dirt. They wore sandals, open-toed sandals. Like, they were their feet. Have you ever seen people's feet who live in undeveloped countries? They're gnarly. She is kissing them. She's weeping on them, sobbing. Not only are her tears, I mean, there's mud and muck. She is just so moved to be in his presence. This alabaster, alabaster flask is probably the most expensive thing she owns. She does something that's unexpected that in that day would have been seen as shocking. She lets down her hair. She begins to dry his feet and wipe his feet, and clean his feet with her own hair. Now, for us, that's not seemingly that big a deal, right? Like our, our ladies wear their hair down all the time. It's not, but in that culture. This was huge. In the Talmud, it's a, it's a Jewish commentary of the law. In the Talmud, this is not, not biblical law, like she's not crossing a biblical line. But in their commentary, this, this, was, this was forbidden. But she'd have been better off taking off her dress and using that to wipe his feet. There's a picture of Intimacy. A depth of emotion, a picture of intimacy, a recognition of gratitude. In fact, one of the commentators mentions that in our culture, the, probably the thing that comes closest is, is if she had been topless. I'm not trying to say that to be crude. I'm trying to put you in the middle of the situation. How intimate, how passionate, not, not erotic. We're not looking for erotic. That's, that's not where we're going. She is overwhelmed to be in the presence of Jesus, her Savior. And in the middle of this beautifully intimate act of gratitude and worship, this expression of absolute love, comes this thought. I'm going to pick it up in verse 39. When the when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, "If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a a, a woman, or for she is a woman, uh, uh, for she is a sinner." Sorry. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said. Say it, teacher. Now, I don't know what's going on in Simon's mind exactly when he hears Jesus speak to him. But he is observing this expression of worship, this expression of love and and adoration and gratitude. He He is witnessing this. And rather than think, wow, he really is worthy of this. He thinks, that woman isn't worthy of doing this. And in fact, he doesn't just bring judgment in his mind. He doesn't just judge the woman. He judges Jesus. Because if Jesus were really a prophet, right? Like, if he was all that people were saying he was, if he was going to be the person that he portrayed himself to be, he wouldn't even let this woman touch him. Like... You see what's happening. I deserve him to come and be in my house. I'm worthy of his presence. She is not. And because he's allowing her to touch him, he must not be worthy of mine. He's not who I thought he was. He's not who he claimed to be. You see, the reality is, is that in his mind, Simon had brought judgment on this woman. He had brought judgment on Jesus. But but this is beautiful. He interrupts this, this moment of worship with this horrific horrific thought. But Jesus interrupts his horrific thought with a statement of truth. Hey Simon. I've got something for you. Now, he's just determined that Jesus isn't a prophet, but Jesus has just read his thoughts. Like, he knows what's going on, right? He understands what's happening, and he's about to give him an answer. He's about to prove to him. Jesus is about to prove to Simon that he is who he claims to be. He is who he said he was. He is what the witnesses have said he was. He catches him off guard. I I, I just got to imagine that at some level Simon is... Oh, you knew I said that? He's not rude. Jesus isn't rude. He is direct, and he doesn't allow Simon to live in his own self-righteousness. And he tells him a story in the way of a test. Verse 41. A certain moneylender has two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii and another 50. When he could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And that seems pretty straightforward, right? Like that's logical. We get that. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? And he said to her, like right now he's looking at her and he is teaching an object. This is amazing. Like this man who thought he was worthy of Christ's presence has just judged Christ and got it wrong. He's being put in his place and the woman he thought was unworthy has just become a part of the mission of God. And really today we benefit not because of Simon so much but because this woman who was forgiven. You think you have no purpose in the, in, in the world of Christ? He uses the likes of prostitutes and tax collectors and people who are outcasts. He taught from her life and her experience. But then he turns to her and he says to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So Simon is having this conversation with himself. He's thinking in his mind. He might have said, you know, like talking to himself quietly. Man, if he knew who this was. Jesus says, Simon, hey. You think you know what you're talking about. Let me show you the truth. And he tells this story about a denarii, a, a, a worker who, has 50, who owes 50 denarii and a worker who owes 500 denarii. And, he, and they owe them to a money lender or what we would maybe consider like a, a loan shark. 50, a, a denarii was about a day's wages. So one person owed 50 days wages. One person owed 500 days wages. But the point was not the amount they owed. The point was that they both owed and they couldn't pay. Neither one was capable of paying back the debt. And when the moneylender found out, rather than, rather than threatening them, rather than sending his thugs after them to beat him up, rather than cutting off pinkies with garden shears and, and making an example out of them, the, 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 the moneylender, the loan shark, says, you know what? You're forgiven. In fact, the debt is erased. And the question, simple question that comes out of it from Jesus is, is who's going to appreciate this most? Who's going who's to be, be most thankful? Who's going to love him most? Well, obviously, the one that's had the greater debt paid. And Jesus is like, yeah, you, you answered right. But what's interesting about this is, wouldn't they both be appreciative? One's just going to be more appreciative. See, what Jesus did was he showed Simon that there wasn't even an ounce of appreciation. He didn't even understand his debt. He didn't under, even understand his, his own issues. He didn't see his own sin. And so, so Jesus doesn't let him stand there in this ignorant place. And he's, he's like, look, let me just show you. Look at all she's done for me. Look at all you haven't done for me. Simon, he didn't give any water for Jesus' feet at all. Like it would have been customary for Jesus to have his feet washed when he came in. Simon wouldn't have done it, but he would have at least had a servant do it. But he he didn't do it. The woman washed Jesus' feet with her tears, dried them with her hair. Simon, he wouldn't even kiss him on the cheek. Like it was another custom to to kiss one another in, in greeting. And this is like, this is, the, this is the good place to be kissing somebody, their feet. Simon wouldn't even kiss him. Jesus says, the woman has continued to kiss my feet since I walked in, since I laid it down. Simon, you didn't anoint my head with oil. Another custom, another, another act of Hospitality. You didn't even find it within yourself to to be generous with a little bit of oil. This woman has has rubbed expensive ointment all over my feet. See, Simon was so concerned with all the the reasons that the woman shouldn't have been there, what was wrong with the woman, what was wrong with Jesus. He was so concerned with, with, with what Jesus should have been doing that he totally missed the fact that he wasn't doing what he should have been doing. He was completely blindsided by this self-righteousness. He was completely overwhelmed by a view of his own sainthood. Jesus points it out. And, and, and he shows him that the contrast goes even deeper than just the pleasantries of the day. Simon, he couldn't see Jesus as a prophet. He must not be a prophet. If he'll let this woman touch him, Simon had rejected Jesus, but the woman loved him. She she saw Jesus as much more than a prophet. Now, I don't think she had a full Christology. I don't think she had a whole picture of like the Trinitarian doctrines. And I don't think she fully realized everything that was going on with who Christ was, God in flesh. You know, I don't think she understood the incarnation, but she had an understanding that he was more than a prophet. She saw him as worthy to be worshipped, to be loved absolutely. She was willing to set aside the opinions of the people in the room, the opinions of the the, the cultural expectations of the day. She came into this house, into a party that she would not have been included on. She comes in, she kneels down, forgets what they think, and cares about Jesus, solely focused on Jesus. She's willing to set aside every other priority. She hears that Jesus is there. She goes and gets there. She's like, I got to be with him. He's the most important thing for me. He's the, most, he's the highest of my priorities. I must be with him. Whatever she was doing, she stopped. And she went to see Jesus. She wasn't worried about the expense. I've already mentioned that this alabaster flask, this ointment was likely the most expensive, the most extravagant thing she owned. And yet here she is using it on a man's feet. I think that speaks a little more than what we want to just give it credit for because who is it that would have used her as a prostitute? Who would have abused her? Who would have victimized her? Who would have Treated her poorly. Men. But here she is, so devoted, so grateful, so full of emotion and a desire to worship that this man deserves her best. And he shows us, Jesus shows us that she did this not to get forgiveness, but because she had been forgiven. The story was that the debt was, was, was taken away, that she was released from her debt. And as a result, she would love. And he says this expression of love is because she understands how much she has been forgiven. Her absolute love for Jesus was the result of his absolute forgiveness of her sin. How many of us approach Jesus this way? Like, even this morning, coming to church, and, and I know I'm, I'm talking to the, to the good churchgoers, like, you're not out at the lake today. I understand that. I get that. You got your brownie points. But how many of us really come to church this way? So solely devoted, so singularly focused. We just want to be with our Savior, we just want to be in His presence. Like I'm not I'm not concerned what people think when I sing out loud the songs of praises because he's worthy. I don't care what they think if I don't dress the way they expect me to. Like I got like 5 shirts, you know. I rotate them and now I have to like be careful not to wear this one this I have to wait till Matt wears his so I can wear it the next week. It's tough. I guess I care a little bit because I don't wear it the same way Matt wears his. But seriously, how many of us are willing to disregard the opinions of people in rest and rest in the acceptance of our Savior? How many of us have, have come this morning expecting some external thing to spur us on to love our Savior, to be emotive towards our Savior? How many of us have truly set every other priority aside that even in this moment you're not anticipating the end of the sermon so that you can get on to, the, to what the, the rest of the day holds? I mean, it's about to get hot. We've got to get, we've got to get going. The lake, man, it's, it's waiting. How many of us approach Jesus not sparing any expense not just our lives, but, our, but all of our possessions. Just, they're yours. You can have them. You have me. I think the truth is that most of us are probably somewhere between Simon rejecting and this woman is completely sold out. Because she's seen her sin. And now she knows her Savior. And she knows that she is fully accepted and fully loved. My hope, again, is that you'll walk out of here ready for this. uh, uh, Pressing deeper into this. Living more like this prostitute than the religious man that we read about. So I want to just draw three conclusions, three conclusions that I think are demonstrated in the text. Jesus, Jesus is worthy of our absolute love because he absolutely loved us first. He didn't say, hey, figure out a way to love me and then I'll love you. He is not loving reciprocally. He's not returning love for our love like he is the great dynamic changer like he's the relationship dynamic fixer that we're reciprocal he's already taught that he showed us that, that even even lost people even people without Christ even people who are distant from God and who have no religion even those people love reciprocally even those people have an ability to love others who have loved them he showed us that Luke chapter 6 you can go back and read it for yourself but here's the reality. In the midst of our rebellion, in the midst of our sin, when we weren't even looking for him, we were loved by him. The Bible's clear about this. It, it starts with him, John 3:16: for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God loved us first. Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to get cleaned up. He didn't suddenly decide that, oh, they finally have measured up. Now I can love them. He loved us when we were incapable and undeserving. John, 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. He loved us when we didn't love Him. He loved us when we were in sin. He loved us when we didn't deserve it. He loved us by coming to us, by putting on flesh and living among us. He loved us by not immediately condemning us, but rather providing a way of salvation For us, he loved us by living a perfect life, dying a sacrificial death in our place for our sin, and then on the third day, rising victoriously and offering us life simply by trusting him. He looked at the woman, Your sins are forgiven, your faith has saved you. You don't have to work it out, you don't have to make it happen. You just simply have to trust in the one who has. Will you trust him? That's what he's calling us to. To like the prostitute, we all we have to do, all we have to do is simply trust him. Receive his forgiveness of our sins. Receive his love, his acceptance, his power, his presence, his provision. And we won't be able to help loving him. we got to start by saying that he is worthy. He's worthy of our absolute love because he absolutely loved us first. It all starts with him. Second conclusion, Jesus is worthy of our absolute love because of who he is. Not just what he's done, who he is. He's not simply this guy walking around taking taking credit for stuff that he didn't do. He's not a prophet to be ignored. He's much more than a prophet. And we see it. We see it at the end. He's like the people are like, who is this who even forgives sins? Like they're shocked by this. They're surprised by this. And they should be. I mean, who can forgive a sin? Let me, let me just put it in terms like this. So just imagine, and I hope this never happens to you, but just imagine your spouse cheats on you. And you come to me and you say, Seth, my husband, my, my wife, whatever, cheated on me. I am hurt and I am angry. What do I do? And, I, and if, what if I just looked at you and said, your spouse is forgiven. What authority do I have to do that? Who has the authority in that situation to forgive that spouse? The person offended. How can Jesus possibly forgive sins if he is not the one who was offended by sin? This is why this is such a big deal for them. Like the Jews in that day, when they heard this, this was blasphemy to them. If if that person was was claiming the authority to forgive sins, this is huge. Like this would have been reason, in fact, he did end up getting killed for things like this. Because he's claiming to stand in the place of God. Who is Jesus? What does he deserve because of who he is? not just the forgiveness piece that he offered. He received worship. Like this woman is bawling and sobbing over his feet. She is intimately moving towards him. She is intimately engaging him. She is adoring him, devoting herself to him, committing her life before him. Like she is worshiping Jesus. If he had received that and not been the one worthy to be worshiped, be no reason to call you to trust in him because he'd be a liar and he'd be a, he'd be a fraud. Jesus, in his example, Jesus in his teaching, Jesus in his expression, Jesus in the way he's walking here and the way he's living, he's not just simply saying I'm a prophet. He's proving to them that he is more. He is God. He is worthy of your all. All just like he's worthy of that prostitute's all. And truly, the reason Simon had so much trouble is because Simon wouldn't bow and offer up his all. He refused to see his sin. He refused to bow before Christ. He refused to recognize Christ for who he was. And we, we've got to see this. Jesus is worthy of our absolute love because of of him absolutely loving us first and because of who he is. One third and final conclusion. We cannot absolutely love Jesus until we believe we are absolutely undeserving of being loved by Jesus. It's not something that we work up to. It's not something we do. It's not some way for us to gain it. We have to understand this. We have to, ha, we have to grasp this. Our intimacy with Jesus is directly related to understanding how deep our sin has gone and how great his forgiveness is towards us. Our gratitude toward Jesus is understanding the breadth of his forgiveness. Our worship Of Jesus is directly related to understanding what he's done for us. Our love for Jesus is directly related to not just seeing who he is, but seeing who we were and what we've been forgiven of. That's exactly what's happened. That's the exact point of his story. Who's going to love most Who's going to be the greatest worshiper? Who's going to love to the greatest depths? The one who understands they had the greatest debt. You have answered correctly. I had this conversation so many times in so many different ways, in so many different contexts, in the, in the nine years that we've planted this church. And even before that, when I was leading small group ministries and, and things like that, before we ever planted it in second, I had this conversation so many times in so many different ways. It was very difficult to be confronted in our sin. In the midst of discipleship relationships, I've seen them end because I confronted someone in their sin so that they could see the forgiveness of their Savior. Savior. In the midst of Bible studies, just as an example, we just did a Bible study for married couples, uh, and it focused on on how uh, we bring the gospel to bear on our marriages. But one of the key things we had to get and had to understand before the gospel would really begin to bear fruit in our marriages is that our spouse isn't the greatest problem in our marriage. I'm the greatest problem in our marriage. And the number of people that I heard, oh, this is so difficult, but it's so good. At one point in particular, I remember having a conversation. And I just can't hardly take this. This is the best place for us to be. Because when we finally realize that we don't have anything to offer Him, we can finally receive all that He has to offer us. In my preaching, I mean, I'm pretty direct about things, and I get that. I hear that from you sometimes. The one that concerns me the most is that, well, I don't know if I could bring them because I don't think they'd want to hear what you have to say. I just want you to know, my greatest desire for your best good is that you learn to love Jesus like this prostitute loved Jesus. And so every week I come. And I try to paint this picture of this glorious God who was created and chose to save, this majestic and and powerful and present God who loves us deeply. And in the midst of that, in the midst of showing you his holiness and his righteousness and his beauty and his majesty, I can't help but confront you with your sin. And the reality is, is I don't do that because I just want to get in your business. Because I want to make you feel guilty. But because I love you. Because I know that the only way we're going to love Jesus, the way this prostitute has loved Jesus, is when we recognize how much we have been forgiven. You see, our intimacy, our worship, our gratitude, our love, it is directly related to understanding and seeing the bigness and the beauty and the majesty and the perfection and the holiness of our great God. And when we see that chasm, when we see that chasm and we recognize it's uncrossable, the, the, our, 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 it's crossable because Christ gave us a cross, but when we see that we, it is unattainable, like we can't get there on our own, the cross grows in our our view. It becomes more precious and more more certain and gives us greater confidence. In fact, if you've been with me long, if you've been in any of my discipleship, I, I hope already you're picturing this picture. I already hope that you have a graphic in mind. A graphic that shows us just what it looks like to live this life. You see, there's this point on this graphic, it's called the cross chart. I stole it from a guy named Bob Thune, and Bob Thune stole it from a, a, a company or a group called World Harvest Missions, and who knows where they stole it from. They're taking credit for it, so about six months ago, I started taking credit for it. I only tell you now because this is being recorded, and I don't want somebody to think that this is me plagiarizing. But the reality is is that this chart, when you look at it, you see this, this straight line. And it comes to this moment of conversion. And at the moment of conversion, there's two things that happen. You recognize your sin and the holiness of God. And that line diverges. And the reality is is that all of our Christian life is growing in this understanding. There's this growing understanding of the holiness of God, a growing understanding of our sin. It's not that we become more sinful or God becomes more holy. It's that we become more aware that He is more holy than we first imagined and we are greater sinners than we could have first fathomed. And the further we go, the greater we walk into this, the more we begin to cherish the cross, the larger it grows in our view. The more we devote ourselves to Jesus, the greater we press into him, the more we're willing to let down our hair and give our life and all of our possessions to him. Because he grows big and we can't help but absolutely love him because he absolutely loved us in our sin. And not just a little bit of sin. A sin that runs so deep that now as I've grown in my maturity... I realize that prostitute, she might have been a 500 denarii sinner. I'm pressing the thousands, the hundreds of thousands. The depths of the depravity, the depths of the sin within my heart would crush me if not for the cross of Jesus Christ. And so I come to you every week pleading with you to see your sin that you might turn and love your Savior because he has so overwhelmingly, so absolutely loved you. So yes, I preach this because I believe it. And I believe it because Jesus teaches that we cannot absolutely love Jesus until we believe we are absolutely undeserving of being loved by Jesus, I don't say this to be hurtful nor to be confrontational. I just simply want you to love Jesus. Simon didn't recognize his sin. The woman did. He rejected his need for a savior. He rejected who Christ was. And she knew all too well. Whether we're 50 denarii sinners or 500 denarii sinners, we are all sinners in need of a Savior. And you can be confident that if you'll trust in Christ, he will forgive you of your sin. He will receive you. And he will absolutely love you. That you might absolutely love him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your Son, for loving us enough, not just enough, but so extravagantly, so lavishing, so much grace upon us, filling us in the midst, in in the depths of our emptiness. Making up for all of our shortcomings. Taking our sin and giving us your righteousness. Thank you. Jesus. Is so grateful. So grateful for the sacrifice that saved us. So grateful for the absolute love that empowers and enables and equips us to love. Spirit, would you lead us now? Will you do as the scripture says you would do? Would you reveal the Simon in our hearts, the self-righteousness, the standing on our own, the trying to impress you with our good works? Would you convict us of our sin would you convince us of our forgiveness that we might stand and worship you? Spirit, I would ask today if there's any that have been living in religion and standing on works and uh, striving to impress you and prove to you that they are worthy, that you would confront them in that. And I would I would plead with you if there's one here today that has never trusted in you. That you would open their eyes to the truth. That together with every other person in this room, they are a sinner in need of a savior. Enable them to trust in you and be forgiven of their sins and loved by you. That they might love you.